Thank you, Tim, for filling in for Ron today. I appreciate it. He saved you all from being subjected to my leading the music. That would have been a disaster, huh? Well, we could go home after that last song, I think, huh? Isn't that a great song? I love that song. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. We are going to look at that today as our text. You know, Genesis talks about a husband and a wife becoming one flesh. And uh, one of the ways my wife and I have worked out that one flesh relationship is uh, that uh, she loves musicals. And that has crept into my existence. For somebody who really does not like musicals, uh, I have learned to like them. And one musical which my wife enjoys in particular is The Wizard of Oz. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie. It's not heresy to watch it, but it's enjoyable. And I'm not going to expound on the movie this morning other than to say the premise of the movie, uh, as you may or may not know, is Dorothy's adventure, right, and her struggle to get back home, her struggle to return home. And Dorothy's uh, desire through the whole movie, is to find her way home uh, from the land of Oz, only to find out that it was all a dream. It was all a dream in the end. And ironically, Dorothy was told by the good Glenda that she could have gone home anytime she wanted to. Anytime she wished, she could have gone home. The way home lay right before her the whole time. She just couldn't see it. Well, like Dorothy... Uh, The way home is right before us this morning. Our heavenly home, that is, our Father's house, is right before us. And sometimes, like Dorothy, we just don't see it. It's laying right in front of our eyes and we just can't see it. A lot has been lost from the vocabulary of the church uh, over the years, but nothing so dreadful, I think, as the loss of what it means to truly repent. Uh, We say from the pulpit all the time, repent, repent. But we never tell people how to repent. And I think a lot has been lost over the years in vocabulary. People don't really know what repentance looks like anymore. Dorothy was told that she could just click the heels of her... I can't do it. She could just click the heels of her ruby red slippers together three times and say, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Unfortunately, that's not going to work for you. (laughs) Getting back to the Father's house when we have strayed because of sin is in some ways much more difficult than that, yet in other ways it's easier. And so this morning, uh, on your handout there, we are going to find our way home by learning the necessary steps involved in the process of repentance. Genuine repentance. Now, this is not inspired. There's three points there. It's not an inspired uh, sermon here. (laughs) The text is inspired, but not this sermon. But understand that there are three steps. Step one is to recognize the seriousness of sin. Step two is to respond to the feelings of conviction. And step three is to rely upon the forgiveness of God. Genuine repentance requires all three steps to be taken Otherwise, you will find yourself on the porch of the Father's house, but not in it. And we all want to be in it, don't we? So this morning, uh, we're going to read Psalm 51. And I think few passages in Scripture demonstrate 
true repentance as does this psalm. So go ahead if you're not there already. Uh, turn there with me and we'll start in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desired truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that I may that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered. On your altar. Most of you are familiar enough with the background of Psalm 51, but I just to, for those of you who are not, uh, recall with me 2 Samuel chapters 11 to 12. Uh, we won't turn there this morning, uh, but it takes place in light of David's fall into sin with Bathsheba. You'll recall that uh, David lusted after Bathsheba after seeing her on the rooftop. And he had an adulterous affair with her. And when she became pregnant with his child, he tried to cover it up by having her husband killed. First, he tried to cover it up by having her husband go into her. Uh, but when that didn't work out, uh, he put Uriah on the front lines of battle and then had all the troops withdraw. And you'll remember Uriah was slain in battle. He was exposed to the enemy. So after... Uriah was killed, David took Bathsheba, brought her to his house and married her, and she became his wife. Now, this, of course, it says in the text, caused God's anger to just burn against David. God was angry over this issue. And so he sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David, 2 Samuel 12. And David's re response in 2 Samuel uh, 12:13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And that is the basis for this, what we see this morning, the fuller confession of David to those crimes, to that sin. This is an expansion of what it means that I have sinned against the Lord. So this is his fuller confession and his penitent prayer. 
and understand that David has committed two sins for which the Mosaic law allows no forgiveness. Both of them are worthy of death, and that is adultery and premeditated murder. His penalty for both should be death. So he understood that his only hope to be forgiven of these crimes was to go before God and plead and beg for forgiveness and mercy. And that is the basis of what we're going to talk about this morning. Like that son that I read earlier in the the prodigal son in Luke 15, uh, that son who went off and squandered his inheritance and blew the family fortune, uh, this was his only way back to the father's house. Remember, he had to come to the father and he had to to beg with him to say, "I'll, I'll work in the house as a slave. Just take me back in. And the father says, what are you talking about? You're my son. Welcome back home. And so this morning, I believe this is going to be instructive for us today. We need to, to repent, but we need to know how to repent. And the first step on the way home to the father's house is to recognize the seriousness of sin. You know, that son, when he was out there, it says he came to himself, Right? He was sitting out there. He was ready to eat the pods that they were feeding to the swine. And he realized, he came to his senses. He realized, I could be at home living it up. I could have it all. And I'm out here eating swine because of my sin. And so, we need to acknowledge certain truths intellectually as part of the process of repentance this morning. We need to come to ourselves. We need to come to our senses. We need to recognize the seriousness of sin. Sometimes we think that all sin is the same, you know. We use the word generically sin, but it's not all the same. Uh, Sometimes uh, we think that just because it says sin, but look at the text of Psalm 51. Verses 1 and 2 in particular. David uses three words here, okay? Three words to describe sin. The first one is pasha in the Hebrew, and it's, it's transgressions, it's rebellion, it's crossing a line. The second one is awon, and it means guilt or iniquity or or perversion or waywardness. It's straying. It's straying from home. And the third one is kata, and it means sins. It's, 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 It's generic sins. It's falling short of God's holy standards. There's three types of sin here that David is confessing. And that's important because what's being communicated here is the totality of his sin. It's not just one sin I've committed, God. It's the whole deal. It's the whole package. Yes, I committed adultery. Yes, I had the man killed. But I lied and I deceived everybody too. And my sin affected everybody. And so David is recognizing the totality of his sins. These are sins of commission as well as omission. Okay? They're not just simply violating God's standards and and trying not to sin, they're sinning by not doing righteousness either. He has completely messed up. Each of these uh, in the Hebrew has a, a first person ending on them, which means they're, it's a possession. David is taking ownership of his sin. I own it. They're the sins of me, the transgressions of me, the iniquity of me, the guilt of me. It's all mine. I own it. David recognized the seriousness of his sin. I have rebelled 
I have crossed the line. I have perverted your ways. I have gone astray. And I have fallen short of your holy standards. Verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. That's the word rebellion. I know my rebellion and my sin is always in front of me. It's ever before me. I can't get rid of it. That could mean one of two things, really. He's either saying that his sin is always in front of him and he can't escape the guilt of it, or he's talking about a 1 Corinthians 6.18 thing. It's the stain that stays. It's sexual sin. I committed adultery. And that which a man commits, every other sin which a man commits is outside of his body, right? But what does 1 Corinthians 6 say? That particular one is inside. It's the stain that stays. You can't get rid of it. So David understood that he had messed up bad. Look also at verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. What, did he not sin against Bathsheba? Did he not sin against Uriah? What is he talking about here? He's talking about that it was all done in God's eyes. My offenses were in front of him. They were against him and him alone. Yes, they were against other people, but the guilt of them stands before God. God is the one that will judge and evaluate sin. God is the one who sees it. In your sight, literally, in the Hebrew, is before your eyes. I have sinned before your eyes, O God. You know, David must have thought he was committing these sins in secret. He was sneaking around behind people's back. He was, he was doing them when nobody was looking. But in reality, who was watching? God was watching. He knows the very thoughts of your mind. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows it all. We can't escape His gaze. I say that to you men in particular this morning. God knows the key clicks on the mouse. God knows what you're seeing on the computer. God knows what you're doing in private. You can't escape it. And you are just as guilty as David was. This is an acknowledgement that God would be perfectly just if He were to cast Him into hell forever for His sins. What's He say? You are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. I deserve it. I deserve it. Whatever you judge, Lord, I own up to it. This sin is mine. I take responsibility for it. I think we need to understand that you and I, like David, we, we deserve hell for our sin. We need to recognize the seriousness of sin. It causes us to be guilty before God. And unrepentant sin leads us to hell. We need to recognize its seriousness. Notice verses 5 and 6 as well. David's acknowledgement of his sin doesn't just stop with the crimes that he committed outside. Notice how far back he goes to his repentance. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. He says, I was birthed, I was brought forth. And in the Hebrew, it's the word writhing in pain. He was in the birthing process, he was brought forth in guilt, in iniquity. He's a sinner from birth, is what he's saying. 
And even further than that, he goes back and he says, in sin, my mother conceived me. In Hebrew, it's the word yacham, and it means heat, literally. It's a metaphor for the conception process. In, in the actual conception process, I'm guilty from, from that point forward. Boy, talk about an acknowledgement of guilt, huh? That's going all the way back. He's, he's repenting even of, of his uh, total depravity from birth. By the way, this is just an aside. This says something about the abortion debate, doesn't it? If David was a sin from the moment he was conceived, if he was a sinner, what's that say about abortion? Obviously, it's wrong. Obviously, there's a life there. There is a sinner from that point forward, from conception on. He's not simply acknowledging the consequences of sin or the guilt of sin, but he's confessing that he himself is a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I've committed these sins. And like Martin Luther said, we are born slaves. We are born totally and utterly depraved. We're sinners from the womb. And everything about us cries guilty. Right? Guilty, guilty, guilty. So the first step on the way home is to recognize that sin is serious. You know, it's become fashionable these days to call sin some sort of a disease or a lack of self-esteem, right? You only have to watch the news or these uh, Channel 40 for a little while and you kind of get the idea. But listen to this quote. Understand that this is a pastor saying this, okay? I want you to understand that as I read this. The core of sin is a lack of self-esteem. Sin is psychological self-abuse. The most serious sin is one that causes me to say I am unworthy. I may have no claim to divine sonship if you examine me at my worst. For once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. Did you get that? That was a pastor saying that. And that's the exact opposite of the Gospel. You have to recognize the seriousness of your sin. Are you kidding me? It's a lack of self-esteem. While we were in Hawaii, we were uh, sitting in the hotel room one day reading the newspaper. And uh, we came across this article that said, Road rage, big, big letters, road rage may be a mental illness. They called it, they had a name for it. They called it intermittent explosive disorder. I'm totally serious. The Bible calls it uncontrolled outbursts of anger. And it says it's a sin. The same could be said for anxiety disorders, depression, rage, sexual immorality. They're not personality deficiencies. They're not a lack of self-esteem. They're sin. And we need to call it what it is. More than anything else, what we need is God's help and His forgiveness for it. We don't need to dismiss it as some sort of 
lack of personality. James 1.15 says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 1 John 1.8-10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Beloved, we can only apprehend grace to the degree that we acknowledge that we need it. We're sinners. We need to recognize the seriousness of sin. Secondly, we need to respond to the feelings of conviction. This step involves a sorrow over sin because God not only hates the sin, but that the sin is hateful in and of itself. Sin is ugly. And David expresses the deepest remorse or regret possible in Psalm 51. He understood that he needed God to be favorable towards him because he was the one whom he had sinned against. Look at verse 1 with me. Go back to verse 1. He says, be gracious to me. Uh, Over in Psalm 57, you see him use that twice there. Hanani. Be gracious, be favorable towards me, God. Um, And he he also uses the word chesed. According to your loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion. And the word greatness in here, by the way, is is uh, it's not qualitative, it's quantitative. I need an abundance of your loving kindness. I need an abundance of your compassion. The word uh, compassion is a metaphor. It actually in the Hebrew is the word womb. I need God to it's a it's a metaphor for caring like a child in the womb. I need God to be favorably disposed to me. There are three things which I need from you, God. I need your grace to sustain me. I need you to remain loyal to me, your loyal, steadfast love. And I need an abundance of your mercy because I know that I deserve death for my sins. What's the point? Well, the point is that we, we can't deal with our sin on our own. We need God's help. We need God to help us. Time is not going to make sin go away. Simply forgetting about it or putting it on the back shelf or, or positive thinking is not going to make it go away. Simply avoiding certain sins is not going to help because you're still not doing the, the things that you should be doing in righteousness. We sin. And we can't eliminate the guilt of our sin by any kind of human effort. We can't eliminate guilt through personal power. We need to turn from the sin and to God. We need to confess our sins to God and throw ourselves upon His mercy. And since God is the only one who can help, David asked God to eradicate his sin three different ways. Look back at the text with me. 
He uses three very descriptive verbs in the Hebrew. The word macha, to blot out, this is an accounting term. And he says, God, erase, erase my offenses from the scroll. Blot them out. Wipe them out. Obliterate them. He uses the word kavas, wash me. And, and of the three verbs, understand that this is the most colorful. This is a, a laundry term. This is a domestic term. This is talking about taking the clothes and soaping them up and beating them on the rocks and washing them out and hanging them out to dry and doing anything you have to do to get rid of the sin. Beat me, soap me, scrub me. And then he says, Taher, cleanse me or purify me ritually, ceremonially. Uh, drop down to verse 7. It's the same verb in verse 7. Purify me with hyssop. Hyssop is a little a white like sagebrush. And they used to take it and they dip it in the blood and they sprinkle it on the altar. He's saying ceremonially cleanse me with the blood. What he's talking about here, notice there's three types of sin and there's three types of ways to be cleansed. He's talking about the totality of God's forgiveness in light of the totality of his sin. He's comparing the two. I need God to be so abundantly merciful to me because my sin is so abundant. Oh God, I need you. Do whatever it takes. Decontaminate me from the filth of my sin. Blot it off the record. Beat me. Scrub me. Clean me. Purify me so that I can be in your presence. I need you to do that for me, oh God. I want to come home, is what he's saying. I want to come home, Father. I have strayed from the Father's house and I want to come home. And I need you to lead me in the way. Oh God, rescue me from myself. I just referenced it, but look back through verses 7 through 9. The same words. It's the same three verbs that are used up in the top part, but they're in reverse order. You notice that? He uses the word purify him with hyssop. Wash him so that he'll be clean. Hide his face from his sins and blot out his iniquities and his transgressions. They're in exact reverse order. And, and what that does is it focuses your attention on what lies in the middle. Verses 4 and 5. His guilt in the midst of God's forgiveness. That is the emphasis of this prayer. I'm guilty. I need your forgiveness. And notice that David's confession does not center on the consequences of his sin, but on the guilt of it. How many of us ask God to rescue us from the consequences of our sin, but not from our sin? Make me to hear joy and gladness, verse 8. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Literally, uh, the bones which you've crushed down or crushed to pieces. I long to experience joy again. I am weighed down with sin. Sin is a killjoy. <laughs> sin is a killjoy. And when we hold it inside, it, it eats away at us. It, we've got to confess it or it will rot us on the inside. Don't you understand that? 
if you hold it in, it will destroy you. And it will lead to death. Psalm 32 comes after this. But David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever of heat of summer. The crushing weight of the guilt before God just was unbearable. Unbearable. This is what the Bible calls regret or remorse. Understand that in and of themselves, feeling sorry about your sin doesn't mean repentance. Feeling sorry about it or, or saying that uh, I really regret that or um, gosh, I didn't mean for that to happen. That's not owning up to it. That's feeling sorry about it. But I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. See, regret and remorse uh, in and of themselves don't constitute repentance. They only produce sorrow because of the ugliness of sin. They produce uncomfortable feelings within us and discomfort, uh, which, if according to the will of God, uh, they will produce repentance. If they're not according to the will of God, they just produce selfishness, selfish sorrow. Verse 9, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is self-pity rather than turning to God in contrition. Sorrow without repentance is worldly sorrow and it leads to death. Sorrow that is according to the will of God leads to repentance and life and no regret. Regret and remorse in and of itself does not constitute repentance. And this is where many people stop short. I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm sorry. I apologize. All those things are doing is saying how you feel about it. It's not putting yourself at the other person and and begging and pleading for their mercy and their forgiveness. Dear God, I'm sorry I did this or that. We should say, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? You know, examples of recent public apologies uh, are pretty pathetic, aren't they? It's almost become kind of a trend, public apologies lately. Michael Richards, you know, after he made some racist comments uh, at a comedy place over in L.A., he made all these racist comments, and then Michael Vick makes this obscene gesture uh, on, on television, and everybody's got pictures of it, and both of them made the identical statements. You know what they said? I really regret that, but it wasn't me. If you knew the real me, you would know that I'm really not like that. 
That wasn't the real me. I don't know where that came from. I know exactly where it came from. It came from a corrupt and defiled heart. Out of the heart springs forth all that garbage, right? They weren't, it wasn't some other person doing those things. All it was was God's restraining grace kind of backed off a little and the real them came out. Emotion and sorrow and regret stop short of genuine repentance. It will not get you home. And that's where we all want to be, isn't it? We want to be in the Father's house. Sorrow should lead one to desire to be restored to God because you have offended your relationship with Him. You have caused a breach in the relationship. And look at verse 10 with me. Look how David expresses his desire to be restored to God. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 10, back in Psalm 51. You cannot underestimate the significance of this request. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the Hebrew verb bara, which means to create, and it's always spoken of God's activity in creation. Uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, right? He's pleading with God in the imperative here. It's the only place where anybody ever asked God to create something. God created in me a clean heart. Give me a new heart. I, the old one isn't going to do anymore. It's not enough for an extreme makeover here, okay? I need a new heart a la the new covenant. I need a new heart. Give me a new heart that I might be responsive to my sin, that I might obey Your commandments. Give me a new heart which, which desires to please You above all else. That's what I need. And he says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And based on the construction, again, renewal is being used here in parallel. Renew and create are parallels. And it, it heightens the imagery here. And what he's saying is, restore me to yourself, O God. I want to be restored to you. I need you. Verses 11 and 12, he says, do not cast me away from Your presence, and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And Old Testament saints, they didn't have the full assurance that we have of the indwelling Holy Spirit. David feared that maybe he had gone too far. Maybe God couldn't forgive him for what he had done this time. That might even... Maybe even he had sinned so bad that he had lost his salvation. There again, he may also be thinking of what happened to Saul. What happened to Saul? God did take away his spirit from Saul, didn't he? Maybe that was on his mind. 1 Samuel 16, 13-14. However, this prayer, you can bet one thing, he was aware that God's spirit was still there, right? And he doesn't say, uh, restore me to salvation. He says, restore me to what? The joy of your salvation. Okay, so I think, I don't think David thought he was necessarily going to lose his salvation, but he, he felt the distance from his father. 
And he wanted to be close again. I want to come home. So this is not repentance unto eternal life. This is repentance unto restoration. That's what we're talking about here. The weight of conviction upon us should bring a desire to be restored to God. We need to respond to the feelings of conviction. Maybe the Spirit is speaking to you right now. I don't know. As we go through this text together, maybe you recognize that there's some unconfessed sin in your life and the Spirit of God is convicting you right now. Don't let that feeling go. Respond to it. Understand that you've erred against God, that you need to be restored to Him. Understand the seriousness and the consequences of sin and your need to be restored to God and make a move. If you're at odds with your spouse, repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask them for forgiveness. If you're struggling with anger, deal with it. If you're struggling with anxiety, materialism, the list goes on and on. Deal with it. Don't pretend that time will make it go away. Because it won't. It will only harbor bitterness in your soul and resentment. We need to recognize sin's seriousness. We need to respond to the feelings of conviction. And I'm really running out of time here. That's not my fault. (laughs) I just thought I'd say that. So... I have one point left, okay? One point. Bear with me. I want to get you home. How do we get home? I don't want to leave you hanging. We need to rely upon the forgiveness of God. Notice verses 13 to 17. He says, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. This reliance upon God's forgiveness here has two outworkings the way I see it. Appropriation of the blood of Christ is the first one. David's desire is to to praise God out of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. This This and only this is the acceptable sacrifice before God. God does not delight in burnt offerings. God is not going to uh, take uh, you throwing your dead animal carcass onto a, a big ball of flame. This is what we call penance. God is not going to accept penance. And penance is not simply a, some sort of a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church, but it's, it's a counterfeit for repentant, repentance. It's, a, it's, it's an attitude within the human heart that prompts men to attempt to pay for their own sins through good works and suffering. It's trying to pay God back for the sin of your soul. Right? What will I give God for the sin of my soul? My firstborn child? A cattle on a thousand hills, God owns it all. What are you going to give Him? What are you going to give Him that He doesn't already have? He wants a broken heart. He wants a contrite spirit. Notice in verse 7, again, I'll go back to that. We said that the purification with hyssop was ceremonial cleansing. 
Ahisip, again, used to sprinkle blood of sacrificed animals on the Ark of the Covenant. It's for forgiveness. It looks forward to Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no what? No remission. No forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin is on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And nothing else. We need to appropriate His sacrifice for our sins so that we can have forgiveness. By faith... We apprehend what God has done for us. And we trust in the forgiveness that we have in Christ, not through penance. There is abundant mercy and forgiveness at the cross of Christ. If we will but confess our sins and rely upon the forgiveness of Christ, there is no unforgivable sin. The thought that someone could somehow pay God back for their sin, it's not only utterly ridiculous, but it's offensive to God. It's offensive to God. God has provided the perfect sacrifice for your sins. What are you going to add to it? We need to rely upon the acceptable sacrifice of Christ. And by the way, you know, we're talking about the way home. You know, the New Testament always calls Jesus what? The way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Right? The second outworking of reliance upon God's forgiveness is what I call a redirection of the inclinations of the heart. Redirection. What do I mean by redirection? Well, having been forgiven and cleansed and renewed, look what David says in verse 13. He says, I'll teach transgressors your ways. Others will be converted to you. I will sing of God's righteousness, verse 14. I'll teach others about the way God deals with sinners, afflicting them in their sin, counting them righteous on the basis of sacrifices. Again, looking forward to the atoning work of Christ. And when they confess their sins, he will tell others of God's righteousness in his justification of sinners. David fulfilled that vow in Psalm 32. If you read Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Praise God for his forgiveness. Romans 4, uh, Paul picks up the same thing. Romans 4, 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David's desire now is to go from being a sinner to being a witness about God's forgiveness. And that should be our desire as well. Verse 13, so sinners will be converted to you. How do we know if someone has truly repented? There's joy. Notice the redirection of the heart again. Joy. Joy because of the rest that they find in God. Joy of your salvation. Joyful singing. Praise. His inclination now is for obedience to the Word of God. His desire now is for God's glory, not His own. That's how you know He's truly repented. 
I've got to take you one more place. We're just about through here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Nowhere in the New Testament is this idea best modeled. You know, in the Old Testament, they used the word shuv, or uh, it means to turn, to do a 180 degree turn from your sin and to God. Uh, they, it's one of the most common verbs in the Old Testament. But here in Ephesians, this is modeled for us, starting in verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That is, you take off that garment of lust and personal desires. You renew your mind, verse 23. And in verse 24, you put on the new self. You do a 180 degree turn away from your sin and to God in righteousness. That's repentance. It's put off and put on. And, and Paul gives us examples of that right here in this text. Laying aside falsehood, what do you do? You're going to do 180 degrees, the opposite direction. You're going to put on truth. Right? Drop down to verse 28. You're not going to steal anymore. But instead of stealing, what are you going to do? You're going to labor hard. You're going to work hard so that you have enough to share with others. That's the righteous behavior put in place of the wrong behavior. Okay? Look at verse 31. You're going to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and malice and slander and all those nasty sins. And you're going to turn 180 degrees and you're going to be what? Kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You are going to go from being unforgiven to forgiving because that's what Christ has done for you. That is a repentant heart. A desire above all else to see God glorified because of the forgiveness which He has extended to you in Christ. This person has found their way home. The one that practices this. This person, like David, has truly repented of their sins. They have the forgiveness of God. They have found their way home. Turn back to Psalm 51 quickly. I can't leave a couple of verses hanging there, so I need to deal with them. <laughs> Verses 18 and 19, some people say that they don't belong in this psalm. They were added after the fact. I don't agree with that. I think sin has a community effect. And I think that's the point of these last two verses. That's all I'm going to say about it. Just that your sin does not involve just you. Sin has a community effect. When David fell, it had repercussions all across Israel, didn't it? And that's exactly what you see in verses 18 and 19. David trying to reverse those community effects. If you have not experienced the forgiveness of God, if you are still crushing under the guilt of sin, there is abundant forgiveness and mercy at the cross of Christ. Amen? There is a way home. And I would beg you and plead with you to take it this morning. Take the way home. Don't let your sins go unconfessed. Recognize the seriousness of them. Respond to them. 
to those feelings of conviction and then rely upon the forgiveness of God. Get back home. It's where you want to be. Amen? Let's pray.